The following audio is for Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. So we turn to the study of God's Word. We've been studying... 1 Thessalonians, we've come to the end of the book, chapter 5, and let me remind you what's really transpired. If, uh, if over the summer you've missed a few weeks, you've been gone or vacationing, let me kind of tell you what's happened here. As the Apostle Paul has been answering questions that the, the church in Greece, uh, particularly in the city of Thessalonica, had, as he begins to answer their questions, he came to a place in chapter 4 where he began to answer their questions about the, the rapture of the church, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, and he told them, and inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, this is Scripture for us, he tells us some things about that. He tells us, first of all, that he doesn't want us to be ignorant about the rapture of the church. There's some things that we can know. Now, no one knows the, the time or the day or the date, But there's some things that we can know. We can know that Jesus himself is going to return with the voice of the archangel and the the trumpet call of God. We can know that those who have uh, died in Christ, who who love Jesus and have gone on before him and aren't here alive when the rapture happens, they are going to return with him. The scripture says that as well. The scripture says that Jesus will return uh, not like he did the first time. His second coming doesn't look like his first coming. His first coming, he came as the Messiah. He came as the suffering servant. He came to be the payment for our sins. He, he came to go to the cross and pay the ransom for our sins. That's why he came. The second time, he comes as king of kings. He comes as Lord of lords. He comes as the judge of all of the earth. And he comes together together the saints with us. When we get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul continues talking about the second coming, and he says, when the Lord returns, there's basically just two groups of people here on the earth. We divide ourselves in all kinds of different ways, don't we? We divide ourselves by race and socioeconomic group and by educational level, and we, div- we divide ourselves in by uh, politics. Well, uh, here in First Thessalonians 5, there's just two groups. There's the children of the light, the children of day, and there's the children of darkness, the children of night. Only two groups. And we discover that we who belong to the Lord, who are the body of Christ, we're called the children of light. And so he says some things about us. He says, this day shouldn't surprise us. Even though the Lord will return like a thief in the night, we know the signs of the times. We can see them. We can expect that. And so he says certain things about how we live. Children of the night, on the other hand, will be shocked by his coming. When, when they say there's peace and security and everything is good and they think that the world and the, the world system has got the answers to all their questions, Jesus Christ will intervene in history once again. And so we have this teaching. It, it makes up about 20 to 25 percent of the book of First Thessalonians. Right on the heels of that, and this is where we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning of verse 12, right on the heels of this, we have an admonition about how kingdom people should live in the light of the Lord's return. Now, 
uh, as a kid who, who grew up in church, as a kid who is a, a, pastor's, a pastor's kid, a preacher's kid, and I grew up in church, if you were to say to me, okay, in light of the rapture, what should come next? I, I would have had a lot of answers for you. I would have said, oh, uh, global missions network or, or uh, evangelism, worldwide evangelism or, or true discipleship. I, I had a lot of answers that look like, logically, they would follow the teaching of the second coming of Christ. But what actually follows is ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. It comes from the Greek word uh, ekklesia, and it means the called out ones. And it, and it matches the rapture perfectly if you think about it. What is the rapture? The rapture is when the called out ones are called out. And so you and I, when we give our lives to Christ, the Scripture says we're, we become new creatures in Christ. We're no longer of the world. We live in the world, but we're not of the world. We live as those who are called out. Our citizenship is no longer here. Our citizenship is heaven. Jesus Christ is our King. He's our Lord. And we begin to live different lives. And that different kind of life that we live, together in faith community, God put us together in spiritual families. And the spiritual family is called the church. So Paul begins right there. Based on the fact that Jesus Christ is going to return, the church should look like this. Last week we started that study. Last week we studied the church's responsibility to follow its pastors and elders. Here's what we looked at last week. Verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We ask you, brothers... To respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And the result of congregation and pastors and elders together should be that we are at peace. We are in unity with each other. And so Paul begins this study of the church by saying it starts with the fact that the, the church has some mature leaders in it who are called pastors and elders. We looked at First uh, Peter chapter 5, and we put all this together. So the first thing that he does is he tells us this is how we relate to those who are more spiritually mature than we are, these who are in spiritually mature leadership roles in the church. But now, as he moves forward... He's going to tell us how we relate to those who are more spiritually immature than we are. So, so do you get it? Here we are with the family of God. What is the family of God made up of? Well, uh, some in this room are still on their journey to receiving Christ. You are not in the family yet. You're here with us. You're thinking about receiving Christ. The Holy Spirit's been speaking to you. We pray that today's the day. We pray that today's the day when you give your heart and soul and life and you make Jesus Christ your Lord and all the believers around you are praying that that'll happen. Amen, believers? That's what we want for you. So you're here with us looking at us. But those of us who are in the body of Christ, some of us haven't been in very long. Some of you have just given your life to the Lord in recent weeks or months. 
You're brand new in the body of Christ, and still the, the Bible will call you babes in Christ, or you're still immature. There's so much to learn. You don't know your Bible yet. Some ha- have known the Lord for a year, or maybe two, in that journey and in that walk, and they're starting to grow in the Lord. Some in this room have known the Lord for 10 years, and some for 20, and some for 30, and 40, and 50, and Larry Palmer's known the Lord for 700 years. So we have all ages in the, in the room and all places in the body of Christ. Now, we're the family of God. We have an obligation to those. How do we relate to those that are more mature than us? How do we relate to those that are less mature than us? Here's what the Scripture says, beginning in verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, and to be patient with them all. Let's take these one at a time. Paul gives these principles that guide our relationships with the spiritually immature, and he gives us really three categories of them. The first is, he says, admonish the idle. Now, uh, you and I'd have to admit that lives have changed in Montana in the last hundred years. Uh, Imagine uh, believers that gathered together for worship 100 years ago in Montana in 1918. And all of us have to imagine that, except Larry. And so, uh, and so imagine what that was like. Uh, people in 1918, uh, they got up early in the morning, maybe before the sun came up, and they started taking care of the animals. And uh, if the wood wasn't chopped, somebody chopped some wood and got it into a wood-burning stove so that they could make breakfast and get coffee on, and there were chores to do around the house. A hundred years ago, uh, the farm or the ranch uh, was important. That was your life. And so if, uh, if the hailstorm came like last week and knocked everything down, that could be traumatic for a family because everybody worked, and everybody had to work hard all the time. That probably wasn't your experience this morning. I doubt if anybody in this room chopped wood this morning. Nobody in this room went to the stable and got the tack to hook the horse up to the buggy. This went out and stuck the key in and rolled the ignition and, and uh, you, you didn't get the wood-burning stove going for breakfast. You probably didn't even make breakfast. You stopped at McDonald's on the way, didn't you? And uh, you might didn't even make coffee. You might have stopped at Starbucks on the way in. And so we have all of these changes in our lives. And what is it that we have because of that? We have more time than those people ever did. So among those people, when I was a boy growing up with my grandparents and other people, there was a phrase, it's not in the Bible, but there was a phrase. It comes from passages like this. And the phrase is, idleness is the devil's workshop. Did you ever hear that? You ever hear that phrase? Idleness is the devil's workshop. So if, if that phrase, idleness is the devil's workshop, was true in 1918, then today, idleness is the industrial complex. Think about it. You and I have a lot of time. What do we do at that time? We watch TV. We go online. We have downtime. We read a book. We go on a walk, we've got our hobbies, we camp, we fish, we 
We, we go out in the woods and we live like the people did a hundred years ago for a weekend and we call it really cool. But the reality is we have a lot of time. Uh, I read this week that the newest concern among parents in America is that their kids uh, will be alienated because they're not very good at playing Fortnite. And so parents who once got uh, piano teachers, uh, piano lessons for their kids and soccer coaches for their kids are now getting coaches for their kids to teach them to play Fortnite better so that they'll be cool with all the other kids. Does that not seem strange to you? That this is, this is a, a prime parental concern my mom, long before video games were ever invented, my mom used to kick us out of the house so that we wouldn't be doing nothing all day. She said, go out and do this. She didn't want us to be idle. Now, with all of that being said, and, and all those things are true and characteristic of the society that we live in, this particular passage isn't about making sure that you have a, a list of chores for your kids and everyone's not idle. You can be busy and die and go to hell, right? Nod your heads or I'll preach that. Busy people die and go to hell every day. So Paul's talking about being idle in the kingdom. He's talking about not using what God has given you and gifted you with for the purposes of the kingdom of God. And we discover that there are many among us whom for church is just, they're just observers. They're not participants. They're consumers. They're not a part of the family of God like we are called to be. They're just watching. And like armchair quarterbacks or Monday morning quarterbacks, they critique what the church should do, but in terms of their own lives, they are, they're idle. They they have no place of service. They don't share their faith. They aren't participating in the tithes and offerings of the church. They, They don't pray together with the people of God. They're not concerned with the purposes of the church in terms of mission and evangelism and the Great Commission. And so the passage says we're to admonish the idol. There's a second thing that we're called to do here. Not only admonish the idol, but we are to encourage the faint-hearted. Uh, the word faint-hearted here is the concept that the, this person isn't a person who's always been faint-hearted. The concept here is that the person has been in the battle. The person has done the work. The person has carried the load, but they've been wounded in the battle. They've done so much of the work that they're kind of worked out, maybe burned out. They've come to a place of fatigue. They've come to a place of kind of desperation. And even though they've they've been walking with the saints of God, doing the work of God in the kingdom of God, they have come to a place either by offense or by discouragement, or by doubt, or, or, or maybe just the seasons of life. Maybe the doctor has said, it's cancer. Maybe they lost a spouse. Maybe some things have changed for them. And now they have become faint-hearted. 
It's the story of John the Baptist. You remember the story? John the Baptist, Jesus says, is the greatest ever born of woman. Do you realize what he says of John? The greatest ever in the history of the world, John the Baptist. John the Baptist isn't in the cities. He doesn't have a nice building to preach in. He's out in the desert. Everybody comes to him. He preaches powerful sermons. He he preaches repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But when Jesus starts his public ministry, John gets arrested by Herod and he's thrown into prison. He will eventually be beheaded. And the scripture says there was a day when John, the greatest that ever was, by Jesus' acclamation, grew faint-hearted. There was a day that he doubted, and he sent his disciples to Jesus, and he said, John wants to know, are you really the one? Did I, did I give my life for all the right reasons? Did I say the right things? John's come to a part of his journey where he's tired, he's arrested, he's starting to second-guess himself, and what is it that the faint-hearted need? They need encouragement. It's an interesting uh, parallel, isn't it? Admonish the idle, uh, encourage the faint-hearted. Uh, what I always tell our pastors and our staff is, with those that we are shepherding, you need to know who you need to hug and who you need to kick in the pants. So, some people need a hug, but some people need a kick in the pants. You admonish the idle, you encourage the faint-hearted. These Many of you in this room who have given your life in service of the Lord, maybe through Emmanuel, and you've come now after a lot of years, and you've come to a place of uncertainty in your walk, I want to tell you, you haven't wasted your life. You've given it to the kingdom. You've given it to the Lord Jesus. You've given it for eternity. Yeah, you've probably got some battle scars along the way. And the Lord Jesus says, we're in to encourage one another. There's a third category here in church life, the family life, the family of God. We admonish the idle, we encourage the faint-hearted, and then we help the weak. It's an interesting phrase because we could presume that in the church we've got the strong and the weak. Except what I've discovered as a pastor all of these years is that everybody in this room has strengths and everybody in this room has weaknesses. There is a place and a time when which each of us can be weak. Some of us are weak when it comes to sharing our faith. We just get all nervous and we can't seem to do it. And when we kind of try to get up our gumption, the saliva leaves our mouth and it comes out in the palm of our hands. Ever happened to you? And then right as you get ready to say something about Jesus, your voice goes up again like you're in puberty. Hey, and then you want to say something about Jesus and it comes out, how about those Astros? We struggle with sharing our faith. It's a weakness in our walk. Other people are bold in sharing their faith, but they're not really prayer warriors. So busy. They're out there sharing their faith, and they don't take time to pray. And their prayer life is a weakness in their life. Some prayer warriors are incredible prayer warriors, but they don't serve like others. It's not really their serving. They're kind of so heavenly-minded they're not much earthly good. And they, they're not serving like others. And some who serve are here all the time, always serving. But they're not so good on the giving of their tithes and offerings. Do you see what I'm saying? 
Each of us have strengths, gifts, the ways that God has graced us, and each of us have weaknesses. What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to get into groups? This is the prayer group. That's the servant group. This is the evangelism group. Is that what we're supposed to do? No. We're to come together, be in the family of God, and we, each of us, with areas where other people are weak, we are to help the weak. We're to bless each other. We're to do this. This is what the family of God looks like. Well, as we continue to read this, there's kind of a, there's kind of a, a last statement, which is kind of a summary statement for the principles that guide our relationships with the spiritually immature. And the last summary statement is, be patient with them all. That's how verse 14 finishes. Be patient with them all. Patience is an interesting thing, isn't it? Now, all we're doing is studying the book of First Thessalonians together, right? This isn't my hobby horse. I didn't, like, come here in order to browbeat you. We've come to the Scripture. Be patient with them all. So here's the question. How are you doing in the patience department? Hmm, it's, kind of, it's one that's kind of hard, isn't it? I, I discovered two things about myself. When I, when I analyze my impatience... Two things about myself. When I become impatient, I have almost, no, not almost, always forgotten that I have a heavenly father who's been patient with me. In fact, you know what the Bible actually says about his patience with me? He's long-suffering toward us. Did you hear the phrase? Because of Paul Jones, God the Father has suffered long Now, I want you to think about your relationship with the Father. Did God the Father only ever have to forgive you of one sin one time? Is that your relationship with him? Uh, I talked to a guy one time. He said, said, uh, I was only ever wrong once in my life. And I said, yeah? I said, when was that? He said, well, I thought I was wrong, but I wasn't. Some of you will get that later. problem with uh, when we become impatient, it comes out of our pride and our arrogance. God didn't have to just forgive you for one sin one time. He didn't just have to forgive you for two sins two times. He didn't just have to forgive you for three sins three, three times. The Old Testament writer says, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? In fact, the only thing that has greater power than the depravity of man's heart is the love and the forgiveness of God's heart. And when I remember what God did for me through his son on the cross, then I have the ability to be patient with you. The second factor that plays into that is you're patient with those that you love. If it's somebody you don't know and you're not treated right at the store, well, you can tell them something. You can, you, can, you can really let them know how you feel or how you think you ought to be treated. But if it's your grandchildren, hmm, changes, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that you are more patient with your grandchildren than you were your children? Now, did the nature of children change? Uh-uh. Children are still the same. Who changed? You did. You grew up. You matured. 
became a different person. So when we love each other, we have the ability to be patient with each other. This is what the family of God is about. Now, notice in this passage, this is ecclesiology. Notice in this passage that talks about the church, the called out ones, how we relate as the family of God. There was nothing in the passage about worship, nothing about songs, nothing about the content of sermons, nothing about what the building would look like or whether or not there's a welcome center or whether or not the church would have picnics, dinner on the grounds after church. None of those things are mentioned here. We often evaluate church based on all the wrong things. Paul here says, in light, of, in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is going to return, this is what the called out ones should look like. This is how we should live. There's a second phrase here, though. Paul kind of turns our attention not just to those that are in the church, but to those that are outside the church. Now, the the phrase in verse 15 applies to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but he adds to it. Here's what 15 says. He says, See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another. And then he adds, And to everyone. So this applies to brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. But now verse 15 applies to everyone. And we have two commands here as we look at the principles that we remember in our relationships with unbelievers. First of all, (coughs) we are not to repay evil for evil. You and I have something inside of us that calls for and longs for and yearns for justice. We We want that, especially as that justice relates to ourselves. And so we are often drawn to the hero who brings justice into a situation when it it can't be found. When, uh, when, uh, when the judges are corrupt and the political system is corrupt and, and, and when uh, crime is rampant and when evil is just running and no one can check it and no one can stop it, we like that hero. We like that person who steps up and stops evil. It's the equalizer kind of guy. It's dirty hairy, right? I mean, we, we love that moment when... Dirty Harry takes it into his own hands and he pulls out the 44 Magnum and he says, go ahead, make my day. We love that guy, right? But it's, it's not a quotation of St. Peter. It was not Peter who said, so, in all the confusion, did I fire five shots or six? I don't know. I lost track myself. So what do you think, punk? You don't find that in Scripture. So we want it. But what we find in Scripture, and we don't find it once or twice or even three times, we find it over and over again, is that God says, vengeance is mine. I'll take care of this. I repay. And I grew up, I grew up with the old King James Thus saith the Lord. That's what God says. And so here we have a command in 1 Thessalonians that says, 
It's not my job to repay evil for evil. Now, is the world going to do you dirty? Oh, yeah. Is the world going to, is the world going to treat you in an evil manner? Oh, yes, they are. Why? Because they're the world. They're the world without Jesus. They're the world still living in their flesh. They're the world that doesn't have the Holy Spirit. They're the world that doesn't have forgiveness. The Bible is not their guide. Of course they're going to treat you evil. And it's not going to be by accident. They're going to rob you and steal from you and slander you and backstab you all on purpose. And what is it that we are called to do? In light of the Lord's return. The Lord is going to take care of all these things. And by the way, God's really good at this. Did you know that? Did you know that God's really good? The Scripture says in Galatians, God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. He's, there's no loopholes in the justice system of God. He's really good at this. He's better than you. You don't have to take God's job to trust him and not repay evil for evil. But that's only half of the command. Look at verse 15 again. The first half of the command is is kind of a negative. See that no one repays evil for evil. But the second half of verse 15 is the positive. But instead, always seek to do good, not just to one another, not just to the family of God, but to everyone. You and I are called to... Bless those who curse us. We are called to turn the other cheek. We are called to go the extra mile. We are called to do good to those who did evil to us. And it's an incredible thing. In fact, we know, we've seen it work, that when God's people do good to those who do evil to them, it's so astonishing, it's so out of this world, It's so supernatural in what the Holy Spirit does that it has brought many of the world to Christ because of what we did. It was beyond their wildest imagination that we would do good to them when they meant harm for us. And Paul says, in light of the return of Christ, this is what family of God should look like. Now, I'm out of time, so point three is going to be next Sunday, okay? So here's what I want you to get as I close this. Biblically speaking, there's, there's no way, shape, or form. You've got to take your Bible, turn it inside out, and stand it on its head upside down to come to the conclusion, well, I've received Christ, and I know Jesus But church is not my thing. That's not a biblical possibility. For those of us who have received Christ, for those of us who know the forgiveness of sins, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who know that we have brothers and sisters in Christ, are calling, we're called out. Our calling is that we might act like and look like the family of God. And when churches look like this, the world will take notice. But most churches don't. 
uh, today in uh, North America, a hundred churches will meet for the last time. They will close their doors and disband. When I first started quoting that statistic to you, it was 75 churches. Now it's a hundred. Why are these churches, why are 5,000 churches a year in North America closing their doors? Because they forgot who the church is. They stopped acting like the church. They stopped being the body of Christ. They stopped being different from the world. And once they compromised with the world and they became like the world, they joined the world. There's no need to be a church like that. But God called us out. He called us to be different. He called us to be Christ-like. He called us in a revolutionary and a radical way to live our lives still in the world until Jesus comes. But to live our lives in such a way that the world would notice that we belong to Christ. Jesus would say, they'll know that you belong to me by the way that you love one another. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. This morning, the sermon was for believers. It's for those who are in the body of Christ in the church. But if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, that's the beginning place for you. That's where it all starts. When you ask Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you ask him to come into your life and you give your life away to Jesus and all the believers around you are praying that today would be that day for you. Amen, believers? That's what we want. That's what we want for you. But this morning, I was really talking to the saints, these who have already given their life to Christ, who have already trusted in the Lord. What does your life look like? Are you, are you just coming to the church worship service once for an hour on Sundays, but you're not really in the body of Christ? You're not really walking with the church? You don't have a relationship with those that are more mature than you? You don't have a relationship with those that are less mature than you? You're not living like salt and light in this world. Is God speaking to you to walk in a different way? In light of the fact that Jesus may return this afternoon, tonight, or tomorrow, isn't it time that you live your life with the kingdom in mind? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. No one's going to embarrass you. No one's going to come to you. But how many of you would raise your hand and say, uh, Paul, God has spoken to me this morning, pray that I will be obedient. And you just lift your hand, say, pray for me. God bless you. God bless you all over the room. God bless you. Father, we thank you for what you have spoken to us by the power of your word. And we pray that we as individuals, as brothers and sisters, and we as the church, the body of Christ, would live in a way that would reflect that we're called out. Father, we... We don't want to live like the world. That's how we used to live when we were destroying our lives. We choose to be like Christ. Remold us, remake us into the image of your son. And let us have a new and a fervent commitment to brothers and sisters in our own church body, in our own family of God, that we might be who you've called us to be. Father, do this for us. 
for the sake of your one and only Son, in whose name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. One of the first rules of uh, biblical interpretation is when you have a passage and you think, oh, is that right? Do I understand it? Find another passage that will help you with that. And so 1 Thessalonians 5 has a, a twin passage. It has a parallel passage. It's found in Romans chapter 15. And the scripture reads, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ didn't come to please himself. It is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another and in accordance with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you. Find someone to help, to admonish, to encourage, to bless and see if God doesn't pour his blessing out on you. Have a great day. God bless you. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.